0: And welcome back to our podcast, Filmmaking Actually. Um, Today I have a very special guest um, here to talk all things sound um, when it comes to film. Uh, He is supervising sound editor, Mr. Max Smith of the one and only Skywalker Sound. As some background information, Max Smith was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska and studied film at the University of Iowa and USC. Both music and film have had a strong presence in his life from a young age, and musical performance talents took him on tour across the United States. He's made Sonic contributions to over 90 films and has been nominated for 13 Golden Reel Awards. He's worked with filmmakers such as Robert Zemeckis, Gore Verbinski, and Guillermo de Toro. His filmography includes Up, Enchanted, Tron Legacy, Dawn of Planet of the Apes, and one of my personal favorite films, Columbus. He's also an award-winning documentary producer and director, and he's been a part of Skywalker Sound since August of 2000. So welcome!
1: Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here. This is so much fun.
0: I figured I would just start with like some kind of basic questions. We definitely have like a mixed audience as far as there's, you know, fellow indie filmmakers. I know there's a bunch of film students uh, that listen to the podcast. But for me, sound is like the least talked about part of film, at least in my experience on like panels and going to festivals and stuff. So my first question is basically just... What is a supervising sound editor?
1: Well, I often think of the supervising sound editor as kind of like the sound producer. So they're the one that really sort of sees the sound job from you know, some point in post through the very end. They're the ones that help usher it into whatever facility, whether it's approving budget, um, scheduling, crewing up who's going to work on the project, and then you know, talking to the client to figure out you know what they want for the sound for their film, and then really seeing it through the very end uh, till it goes out the door to make sure everything is is just right.
0: So you're like a film producer, but for the sound part.
1: Essentially, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's pretty cool. And then um, with that, like I know when talking about sound, there are a few kind of different sort of umbrellas with many many specifications within each umbrella. But um, how would you articulate the differences between audio mixing, sound design, score, and Foley? I know this is super basic, but I just wanted to start with something simple so that anyone who's listening who's not familiar, a couple minutes, what we're talking about, and then we can dive into more.
1: And you can even start from production sound. You know, that's the first thing that usually happens is all the recording on set uh, to try to capture clean dialogue and everything that was happening while the camera was rolling So that's really you know essentially the first part and all of that stuff goes to the picture department and they're working with all that sound and they're adding in you know temp sound effects and temp music and all those things to craft it into a movie and then when it really transitions to the sound team you know generally we're kind of divided up in groups of dialogue editing sound effects slash sound design Foley, and then there's the music department and then all those things come together for the mix. And while yes, they are different departments, there's a lot of um, overlap. You know, the dialogue department is trying to clean everything up to make it sound as, as good as possible. Cutting between different camera angles where the, the noise on that day, you know, you may have shot that scene, you know, two different angles, two hours apart and the background sound changed between those two parts and every time you cut between the angles, the sound changes Well, the, the dialogue editors will um, clean it up to make it sound smooth between those, those transitions. And they're taking out mic bumps and cloth rustle on lavalier mics and, and as many of those things as they can, where um, the Foley team is sort of analyzing everything that the characters are doing. So Foley is... Um, a process where there are Foley artists who are very specialized and they perform character movements to picture. So they often work in a Foley stage that has uh, different surfaces on the floor. They might have uh, carpeting, wood floor, gravel, dirt, grass, and they have you know usually hundreds of pairs of shoes to make sure that they're getting the right kind of shoe that that character is wearing. But they're not just doing footsteps, they're also doing prop movements. So Think about somebody sitting at a table in a restaurant and they're eating and their knife and fork and all those movements, while they may not be super important to the story, it's one of those things that if it's totally missing and you're not hearing it, it'll take you out of the movie. Um, and then uh, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but when we finish the, the mix, we oftentimes have to create a m and which is a version that takes all the English out. So even if there was a knife and fork stuff recorded on set that you're hearing, if somebody's talking over that and suddenly you take out all that English, all that sound is gone.
0: And what does M&E stand for?
1: Music and effects. Okay, perfect. So we um, we do try to do a full Foley pass, and it's very important um, in live action, like I said, because of foreign language uh, versions, but also for animation, because, you know, think of a movie like a Pixar animated movie those characters aren't really walking around. They're not really <laughs> grabbing each other and, and, and doing things. So all those sounds have to be, you know, recorded and edited and crafted. The sound effects and sound design team are working to uh, fill out everything from, you know, doors opening and closing, phones ringing to explosions, fire, just backgrounds, just like, you know, morning birds, um, you know, air conditioning that's maybe off kilter and making a weird sound in the character's crappy apartment. Um, not just there to put to cool sounds in, but sounds to really elevate the story and help the storytelling. The music department, the composer is, is crafting a bunch of score based on what the director wants. Sometimes it's based also on what the picture editors put in the temp cut. And then they record that with an orchestra or MIDI samples or a combination of things or you know a small ensemble. And then all of those things come together for the the sound mix. So it's kinda like everybody's in the pool at once jumps in and, and oftentimes it's a little bit of a mess at the very start because there's too much stuff. And so a lot of what mixing is is getting rid of things from moment to moment to really focus the story. You know, what is important at this moment to tell the story. And where you know does it need to have more reverb more echo are we in a cave are we in a very quiet place are we in a noisy place moving sounds around the the sound field so if you're in a movie theater it's filled with speakers and and the mixers can move sounds between speakers to really make you feel more immersed and um, then everybody's happy and with with the final track and it goes out the door and, and gets married to the picture. And that's what you hear in the movie theater or at home on your streaming service.
0: Yay. Um, that's awesome. And it's definitely like a lot of pieces. Um, I know that uh, one of the first things that I actually learned from you is how vital it is to include sound in the prep stages of production. I will just say that has saved me more than once. Um, the example that you gave me was like designing a room. Like you have all these different pieces that, um, even just to putting the sound together in the end. But um, when you're starting out, you said that if you look at sound like the curtains in a fully decorated room, you shouldn't paint the whole room and then wallpaper it and put in furniture and hang paintings and put up shelves. And then you have no room for the curtains. You have to make the space for sound kind of early in the production process. For me personally, that's translated to things like adding in moments to a shot list to allow for recording enough visuals to fill with sound in the first place. So like... If an actor hears something and reacts to it or the sound is going to carry on for a moment, sometimes you might not naturally, or at least I might not naturally run the camera as long as I would if I was really planning for beats in the film to then fill with sound. But if ahead of time I'm like, okay, this is where he hears the cat in the other room, and then I make sure to roll for just a few extra beats longer past where the action stopped just to kind of give a moment on screen so that we can then add in the cat sounds. Um I don't know, too much time on the internet, cat sounds. Um, But uh, I mean, that's kind of like what I've taken away from earlier conversations with you. But maybe if you could speak to that for a moment, like what is the best time for a filmmaker to start to plan the sound? It sounds like I kind of answered that already. But like, how would you like say the best process would be for a filmmaker to plan the sound of their films? And kind of what are some good ways that um, a director or producer or someone can start early enough in the process to not find themselves standing in front of a fully decorated room holding curtains with no place to put them.
1: It's a it's a great thing, um, and it's often something we, we talk a lot about. It's never too early to start thinking about sound. So from really the writing stage in the script, I mean, sound is such a key sense as a human being. Um, Walter Murch, who's famous for his work on The Godfather and Apocalypse Now and... English patient uh talks about how sound is the very first sense that we have when we're in the womb you know we can't see but we hear and we it's very noisy you know we we hear our mother's uh you know heartbeat and the the blood flowing and and the fluid in the womb and and some sounds from outside um and suddenly we're brought into the world and it's very quiet and unsettling. And then, you know, our eyes, you know, start to come on and things like that. And if you think about it, the, um, I think this is another possible Walter notion is that there are thousands and thousands of ways to describe visual things. You know, our visual language is huge, but there aren't that many words in the English language to describe sound. So it becomes a challenge um, when, you know, people have something in their head and and the way to translate it. But um, going back to that primal sense of sound, um, it is something that that we react to instinctively and it's underutilized when it comes to filmmakers. Um, Like you were talking about before, about a character hearing something that can tell so much about that character or the story or how they react to a sound. Yeah, you know, we're used to seeing things, you know, happen and then a character react to it. But what if they hear something? Um, you know, if somebody's in a, a really dangerous sounding neighborhood, but they don't, they're not reacting. That tells a lot about that character. Maybe they're, they, you know, they've grown up there and they're used to hearing stuff that somebody else who who comes from a very quiet neighborhood might get freaked out and scared about. Um, so it's it's a really powerful tool. It's also a powerful tool as far as um, you can get into a character's head with sound and filter what is the world sounding like at a specific moment? you know are they getting so stressed out and overwhelmed that suddenly all the sound gets you know pulled away layer by layer by layer and you know you really get into their mindset. Well, you can't do those things unless you think about it from. The writing stage and the planning and the the way you're going to shoot it and the shot list of okay here we need to get really focused you know into this person's you know inner feelings um, so it's never too early to to get started and not like you have to in the script write in specific sounds but you have to be thinking about using that that important sense that we that we have and how it can be a really powerful storytelling tool for for the story that that. It's going on the screen.
0: So basically, before you write your script, work out, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I will say that, like, as a director, there are times I've been given scripts to read, or even as a producer, and, like, the script is so overwritten with, like, every single detail. There's a part of me that wants to be like, okay, we're gonna have a good sound team, I promise. If you just like, there are sometimes it's important to have a certain song playing or something like that. But um, sure, yeah, I think
1: you just have to be clear of you know this is something that the you know the sound is driving, you know this this moment, and you know and it's not a bad thing to to get someone like a sound designer or a supervising sound editor involved early on where they can read the script and they can give you their their thoughts and say oh, you know this might be more interesting if you think about it in this sense or if you know you hear you know a a really loud truck cruise by and screech around the corner and 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 sometimes it's things you don't even have to shoot you know these characters are inside you've established there's a busy road outside earlier on in the movie and then later on if you leave space for those things you can you can sell something without even having to shoot it which producers love because you know hey i'm saving time i'm saving money but oftentimes they don't want to get the sound people involved in early enough, um, who can help them with those decisions, which would save them money. It's it's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, that's actually a good point because I know like I did an episode called "What Belongs on the Page" actually, like for scriptwriters, and like for me personally, and obviously everyone has their own creative process. But like for me, I found that like if it's something that's going to be very important for the story. Like, if we don't have that specific sound or if the actor doesn't move their hand in this exact way, it actually does change the action or changes the mood or changes the plot or whatever. So for me, the things that belong on a script page are the things that are really the, like, benchmarks, if you will, of action and and dialogue. Um, But I never even... I'm I'm embarrassed. I never even thought about, about having a sound person read a script before it goes into production because you're right, there are moments maybe a screenwriter didn't think of that the audio person could put in before we even film or ways to approach a scene.
1: And and also the production sound mixer is a great person to utilize too from a storytelling standpoint. You know, they may be seeing something that the prop department is doing or not doing that, you know, let them have a moment where they can talk to the director or whatever and say like, hey, have you thought about doing it this way? Because that could be really cool later on if you, you know, we shoot that thing and then the, you know, the sound team can sort of take it to the next level.
0: Yeah. We, um, I was on a shoot once where we had the character was like waking up in the morning and like just going through his really trashed room and like drinking old bottles of beer and opening and closing the fridge and everything. And we had him do the action. And even though we did like 23 setups that day, but even with that crazy day, we took one of the setups and we literally just like Everyone just cleared out, and it was just the onset sound tech and the actor just walking around the room doing stuff. And he just followed him with the mic and just recorded him opening and closing the fridge a couple times, picking up bottles, picking up bags of chips, rustling around, and just went through and just recorded in the room all of the things yeah, he was doing. Practice. What? Yes, Scripty did help direct that moment. Thank you, Scripty. Um, nice. My <laughs> husband was script supervising for that. Uh, shoot. But um, yeah, he like went through, and it actually was a big help to have the script supervisor because he had all the notes of all the things the actor had done and he just went through and was like, you know, he picked up this bottle, he picked up this pair of jeans, he did this, and the boom op just walked around the room following him doing that. And even with the insane amount of setups that we did that day, and I think we did go about an hour into overtime. But twenty-three setups—I was pretty proud of us. Um, it, it did give us that full, all the authentic sounds right there to use. So, yeah. Anyway, just adding to um, what you were saying about yeah, that. Yeah, and
1: that's something too that that can be super valuable. That um, you know, people are trying to you know get a certain number of pages in the can per day or a certain amount of scenes. Uh, which you know totally understand, and you know you have locations and permissions and all these things, but taking five minutes or ten minutes at the end of that scene to gather some of those sounds can be huge. And also, like you know, imagine you have a you know a cafe scene where you have you know sixteen people in the background, but they're all being quiet, but they're acting like they're they're making sound, but they're not making sound on the set because you need to get clean dialogue take five minutes after you got all the shots and have those people talk like they were talking in the shots and you're getting those people and those sounds in that location with the, you know, those, that specific character of that room, that same echo. And it's going to be huge. I mean, you, you are going to save money in the long run. Yes. You may still need to record actors later to fill in some of those bits, but um, the re-recording mixer will definitely use that stuff. Absolutely. Because if it sounds authentic, and it sounds great, then we'll put it in.
0: And that's, that's one of those things where like, my great uncle used to have the saying, if you do what's hard, life will be easy. And if you do what's easy, life will be hard. Like sometimes those like extra five or 10 minutes um, really does make a big difference in the end. And maybe it costs a little bit of extra time or money to have an advanced meeting with your post team. But I personally have found that it's been a huge help. And I know that isn't something that I used to do. Like, that's something that after I met you and, like, kind of had, like, (laughs) the curtains were drawn and (laughs) and the light came in the room. Um, But I personally, like, as a filmmaker, can't, like, I don't know. I'm really passionate about it. Um, But before I turn this into a whole PSA about why you should have meetings with uh, your sound people early on, I know we talked about, like, um, on set, having your recordist, like, there in a part of the conversations and everything. At what point would you say to start getting those audio files? Like, I know people always talk about, like, oh, you should have your editor on set. And if you can have your editor starting to do a rough cut immediately, it'll show you what shots you're missing. Mm-hmm. What about the audio files? Like, um, when, like, for me, I always worry about getting the edit locked so that, you know, it can get colored and scored and have the dialogue mix and the effects and all that. And, like, for our effects guy, like, we've gone so far as to if we're on a really short turnaround, we'll, like, lock an effects scene first so that he can get started on that while we cut around it. And sometimes it sucks if, like, we've already locked the scene and then when we've cut around it, we're like, crap, I actually want to change it. But for the most part, having the kind of, like, heavier... Effect scenes locked first, so he can get started. Um, I've done that with dialogue before. Like if the dialogue was really bad, um, I'll get it cut and get it sent over to Ryan so he can start on it. I have the idea that you can't do sound until the picture is locked. But is there anything you can do before a picture is locked? Is that just a bad idea?
1: That's that's. Um, Sorry, it that was a long it's question. It's usually no. It's okay. <laughs> no, it's usually like um, a lot of the indie low budget films that we we say you know don't give it to us until it's locked because otherwise it'll cost you more money because we're having to then chase the, the picture edit. But on, I'd say, every studio film, they are changing the picture for weeks and months while we're on it, which is okay. You know, they're tweaking things, they're having audience previews, we're doing temp mixes, you know, doing a quick version. to They can you know, marry back with the Avid so they can put it in front of an audience. So it's very common when it comes to studio films. Indie films could benefit from having the crew start early because um, if you still have the, the picture not quite locked, there might be something that we see that's like, oh, is there any way you can pull this out another 10 frames because I can do this this thing with the sound to transition out in, into the next scene? So the movie, in the end, could benefit from, you know, being able to have those back and forths and those conversations. Yes, it'll cost more money because we're on longer so it's definitely a consideration to, to weigh. It's also, you know, one of those things, too, where we want to try to get the sound early enough that we can sort of scan through the dialogue and figure out what needs to be done with ADR, with the actors coming in. And if it's uh, everything's locked and, and the deadline is, you know, two weeks from now, oh, crap, I didn't know we had to ADR that actor. We don't have time. They're on another show. We don't have a studio so having those conversations earlier definitely will, will help the end product.
0: As soon as you said that, I was like, wait, yeah, because if you are listening to the dialogue and if something is just completely beyond repair, if you're still on location and you still have the actor, you could just put him back in the room and say, hey, you know, just get some wild lines real quick and we'll just have
1: you do those. Um... It's pretty rare that we get involved um, at that level during that time, but it's not a bad thing to you know have somebody – whether it's a you know the picture editor or picture assistant or somebody you know watching the dailies as they you know from the day and listening to the sound and making sure there's there's not problems, and I I've also heard of um, you know a fairly big company that I won't say <laughs> who it is, not the one I work for, but um, they you know they demand from just a managerial standpoint from their big post department that they're hearing you know dailies you know day two. Even if it's being shot on the other side of the world, they want it sent to them so they can watch and hear it to make sure that that there's nothing wrong. So it's good to have those, you know, sort of check marks in place.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess like one of the joys of being an independent filmmaker is like we can do whatever we want. Like It really is just, you know, who's willing to either work with us or what we can afford one of the reasons i personally like understanding the way it's done if you will making air quotes with my fingers um is because a lot of times you don't need to reinvent the wheel like it was there is a working system in place there is a a technique or some sort of method that works but then as an indie filmmaker like we get to do crazy stuff like you know what i'm going to have my dialogue mixer be sent the files every day and he's just going to listen to them and if they suck then we're going to fix it right now instead of fixing it later or whatever
1: well and that's that's happened on some big studio films too where they they hear something you know it's some giant action movie where they're you know giant fans or explosions or there's some weird prop on the character that they're like oh um this might be an issue send that to the sound team and see see if they can make it work um we have to make them make it work, otherwise it's gonna cost us, you know, another, you know, two million dollars to redo all those scenes that we've already shot or whatever. So yeah, those those things happen on big studio films too.
0: Well, I mean that makes sense. If I was putting like seven hundred million dollars into a film, I'd want to make sure that I could hear the actors.
1: <laughs> but, That's a big movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. We were at a panel, sorry, this is a total side note. We were at a panel, it was about um indie filmmakers that crossed over into the Hollywood film. So it was like Catherine Hardwick, Taika Waititi and Justin Lin, because they had started in these like indie films and kind of crossed over into these big, huge blockbusters. And Justin was talking about how there was one shot where he wanted to flip a bus and the producers were like, well, what's that going to cost? And he was like a million dollars and they gave it to him. Like a million dollars, sorry, two million dollars, excuse me. Um, It was two million dollars. And this is at Sundance, where it's like a room, it was at the Egyptian, so it's like, you know, all these independent filmmakers, and you could just feel them like, do you know how many movies I could make for two million (laughs) dollars? And and the moderator, like, totally picked up on it. He was like, yeah, you know, okay, we're all over here, like, two million (laughs) dollars. But um, no. but yeah, I think about that sometimes. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, I totally digressed there. Um, my next question, obviously, I'm I'm you know a director first and foremost, so this question is a little close to home. How would you describe the best like? The best possible working relationship between a director and the post team, like what advice would you give both for directors working with an audio crew and then for audio crew working with directors? Um, And obviously you're also an award-winning director. So if you want to put any of your own perspective on as a director (laughs) as well, but like, I, I find that especially in collaboration, really understanding the best way to work with different members of your team is really important. So yeah, just, um
1: that. (laughs) Sure. Um, well, oftentimes early on in the process before the crew gets started, myself and maybe a sound designer will go generally to where the picture department is located, whether that's LA or New York or somewhere else. Um, sometimes it's just over video conference, but it's always better to do it in person, um, is to have a spotting session and to, um, watch the movie. Not the first time for us to watch the movie. It's, it's good to get it you know, a few days before so we can watch the current cut, make notes, kind of wrap our head around it, and then show up um, with the director, the picture editor, sometimes a producer's there or a post supervisor, and um, really walk through the film scene by scene. You know, and a two-hour film could take seven or eight hours to do that. Um, But really, you know, talk about, you know, philosophy and, and sound like is this you know more of a documentary style feature um is it hyper real Is, is it surreal you know what what is sort of the approach and and not that a movie has to be one of those things or the other sometimes it's from scene to scene or moment to moment um but then really think about you know kind of pick through every scene and go oh yeah this you know we got this line on set, but we really want the actor to say this instead. Okay, I'll write that down for my dialogue ADR editor so they know those things. Um, you know, just ask a lot of those questions. And sometimes there are a lot of things that come up that it's like, I don't know what I want this to be, but I really like this scene from this other movie and it does something similar and evokes a certain kind of emotion. Can you play with something like that? So that's that's sort of a flag right there for me of like, that's something that I need to go back when I get back into my, um, creative space to play with and try things and send them off to the director and the picture editor early on and say like, Hey, this is just my first draft of this. You know, what do you think? Is this going in the right direction? Is it not? Um, and Randy Tom, who was my, uh, mentor, um, who got me into the, the business, um, talks about, we need time to be able to make mistakes as sound people and sound designers, um, to try, you know, unusual things. Because if we're always playing it safe, then it's, it's you know, not going to be interesting anymore. So we need to experiment and try things and make those mistakes early so we can kind of uh, figure out the right direction. So sometimes I might send something to the director and it's not even close to what they wanted. I mean, hopefully it's not you know, so bad that they're going to let me go from the show, but, um, those early conversations and sort of throwing things against the wall can be a good sort of a barometer of like, okay, are we going in the right direction? Are we not going in the right direction? Um, you know, I, I don't often want to send the whole movie to, um, the director because it's, there's, you know, they could, it's, it's going to be a bit of a waste of time for both, me and them to go through and make, you know, hundreds and hundreds of notes of these little things that are going to be ironed out later on when we all come together for the sound mix. Um, oftentimes young filmmakers too, will uh, will come and sit in the, the sound mix right when it starts. And the mixers are just trying to sort of wrap their head around all the material they have. And they're just throwing out like, Oh, that's too loud. Or this is that. Or like, and it's like, hang on, like, <laughs> give like, can you give me like an hour or two and just like I'm going to iron this stuff out and, and the reality is that they're going to get 85% of the way there just instinctively of what the scene needs and, you know, let them have a first pass and get to where they are and then come in and talk about, oh, yeah, that's great, but I really, you know, can we try this other thing or can we make that softer or more echoey or, or more brash or, you know, very quiet and then loud, and and we'll work through those things together. Those things that we may not have known instinctively, but I'll also get some of those um, ideas from the spotting session early on. Those conversations, then I can help direct the mixers of this is where we need to go with things. There are certain people um, that I work with closely who've had you know twenty plus year relationships with filmmakers, and those filmmakers trust them so implicitly that they only show up maybe once a week for a few hours for the mix to review things, give notes and then leave because they they trust the sound team, they know what they're gonna do. Not that they, you know, are letting the sound, just having the sound team do whatever they want. You know, they give them very specific directions but they know that they're gonna get most of the way there.
0: I think it, it definitely helps. Like I know, like for me, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to like, relax and let someone do their job, <laughs> you know, because it, especially if, you know, if it's a project that I really care about or that it means a lot to me, it's not, it's not, you know, just a job. It's, it's, it's my voice and it's, it's my story and it's something that I'm telling. And, and, um, I know personally, like as a director, it, it's been a road that I'm still walking as far as finding like, who are my, my people, <laughs> if you will, like, you know, I've got my amazing dialogue editor Ryan Coda who will forever get shout outs um, but um, and obviously I married like a whole post-production house when I married my husband um, but that's what you got to do just find a guy like my husband and marry him and then you're all set um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it it um, in in my experience part of being a professional is allowing other people to do their jobs and it is like either you trust someone to do it or you don't and if you don't trust them they shouldn't be working for you you know and they
1: might also bring something to the table that you never thought of
0: yeah exactly that
1: you you go like oh wow like I would have never come up with that myself but that's what it was missing that's the right thing
0: yeah and and that's you know there's definitely been times like um obviously my closest collaborator is my husband and there's times uh we'll use the phrase like I want to audition this for you and like we'll like throw something out if it's like like one of our projects and the other one has an idea and then it'll be like you know, that's a really awesome idea, but that's totally not <laughs> what I wanted to do with this. Or it'll be like, I never would have thought of that ever. Like, a, my brain wasn't even remotely wired to begin to think of that. And it's like a perfect idea and it totally like elevates. Um, and more often than not, that is that is the case. We find something uh, in each other that enables us to do something we wouldn't have otherwise thought of by ourselves. So yeah, I guess I'm just, just saying that that element of collaboration of allowing giving people the space to do their job um, yeah i think i think that's really good advice <laughs> you
1: know and at the same time you don't want to show up at the at the sound mix and suddenly everything is completely different than what you anticipated sure so it's important to have those early conversations you know check in with your with your sound team you know see if they can send you little snippets of something just so you know that things are moving down the right path so, yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely like walking that tightrope, you know. It's not micromanaging, but at the same time, you know, make sure they're they're doing what you're you're hoping they're doing. Yeah. And trusting them.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what I was hearing when you were saying like you have that initial spotting session, so like you let them watch it have the time and as, you know, someone working in sound, you make sure you have the time to watch it and come up with Um, some ideas or whatever, then you sit down, have that spotting session and then basically get to work. And even if it's, you know, even if it's checking in every day, you don't like, I mean, I know with me, like the best collaborators that I work with, like as the director, I don't feel like I have to literally sit there next to them. Like you were saying like, oh, can you make that louder? Can you make that like that? I
1: coffee cup down. Are you going to get to that coffee cup down Uh, while they're trying to like clean up a, uh, you know, piece of dialogue and try to make it clear. Yeah. But what about that coffee cup? Like, hang on, hang on. Like, we'll get there. I have to do three more passes on this piece of dialogue.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and that actually is funny. I did have a, one of the next questions, um, that I had kind of like in, in that vein of like allowing people to have the space to collaborate. I did see that there was an article about um, doing experimental audio for film and um, like for me, I think the true kind of like woof and warp of filmmaking really is thinking outside the box and coming up with, you know, new and unique ways of doing things, not not like some obsessive compulsive like I have to change and reject everything that's ever been done before. Because, like, the wheel has been invented. You don't need to reinvent it. But, like, um, in other episodes, I've talked about, like, when you're working with a composer or even, like, when you're editing, like, don't use the scratch score of, like, drag-and-drop fight sequence number 173 that you downloaded and you just, like, go, and then you, like, cut your film to that and it has to fit that because, like, you want to cut the film to the story and then, if you can, compose music to the cut. I mean, that's a lofty goal, but, like, as much as possible within the realm of possibility of you know, the limitations of a project. What would you say just about both allowing for that experimentation as a director and producer, and then also like how to think outside the box as an audio engineer? Like I saw in the article it talked about like the the tin cans that like accidentally got blown down the street. And then that didn't work for what that one film was. But because you saved that, it ended up being used like a year later in a completely different project.
1: Um, Right.
0: Yeah. So
1: yeah i mean we're we're often going out into the real world and recording new sounds and finding things and oftentimes we have a very specific list for a project oh we need to get this this and we figure out where that is and we talk to the right people and get permission and we show up and that thing is terrible it like doesn't (laughs) sound good at all but there's something else that has no relation to that thing we went there to record which is really cool which we go ahead and record but we have no idea where it's going to go. And it probably won't even go in that film, but we build up this sort of library, um, for ourselves and or for the facility of interesting sounds. And oftentimes, you know, we're, we're not thinking about sounds literally, we're thinking about sounds emotionally. Like, how does that sound make you feel, you know, does it make you feel uncomfortable? Does it make you feel warm and cozy? Is it just something weird and unusual that, you know, catches your attention and so oftentimes, you know, I was talking about making mistakes early is we're often early on in the stage is not looking for the literal sound for, you know, whatever the action is. We're, we're trying to think of like, well, what other things are like that, that might give it a unique characteristic, which it's funny, you know, a lot of times we'll be in a mix and, and a client will say, oh, what is that sound? And, and I have to like stop and pause and think in my head, do I really tell them what it is? Because if I do, it, they might suddenly hate it because they they realize like, oh, that's not I at all what I thought that, it was. Need. That doesn't work at all. You know, so it's like, um, <laughs> so it's oftentimes I, I, I do be, I'm a little mysterious about sort <laughs> of the combination of, of sounds because uh, if it works, it works. And, and I don't want to like reinvent the wheel if, if it if I don't have to. Um but I'm but you know, going back to that emotion, you know, it's sound is such a powerful emotional tool. And I often think about a scene yeah, emotionally, like, you know, and it will change from the beginning of that scene to the end of the scene. Like where is the emotion going? And then what are those things in that realm of possibility? Like you were talking about being in that apartment or that hotel room or whatever with, with all the things going on, you know. What are what are some of the things that an audience would buy that are happening outside that maybe they don't even have to see but can create those emotional tones, um, which can change over the course of the scene. To you know maybe it's noisy and chaotic. There's something happening outside, but by the end of the scene, it's it's all that stuff is fizzled away and you're only hearing a mini fridge or something like that. And and what what's the right emotional direction to go from from a scene? And oftentimes it's like something, you know, you have a loud, busy scene and then you have a very quiet scene. So thinking as a filmmaker structurally, like, how can I make those things so it's not all the same? Going back to music, there's a lot of filmmakers who just want wall-to-wall music, which I totally understand because there are, you know, a lot of films like that. But is it really, you know, serving the story to have um, wall-to-wall music? And after a while, the music is not going to be effective anymore if it's just... Constant and nonstop. You know, the first movie that I ever got to work with at Skywalker Sound with Randy Tom, I was his sound design intern way back in August of two thousand. Was Castaway, and that Tom Hanks movie. Part of the reason it works so well is for the forty-five minutes to an hour that he's on the island. There's no music, and not only that, but um, Robert Zemeckis said he didn't want the sound of any birds or bugs or anything that sound made it sound like a tropical paradise. So he really limited what could be used sonically. You know, it's really, it's waves and, and palm trees creaking in the wind and Foley, and there's not much dialogue. There's probably, you know, 25 words during that 45 minutes, not to spoil the movie, but <laughs> you know, I think, I think if you haven't seen it by now, I don't know if you are gonna see it, but he does finally get off the island you know, he had a failed attempt earlier where he's you know, trying to construct a raft and is fighting the waves and can't get over. But then finally later on when he does get over, then the music comes up and Alan Silvestri is just gorgeous score, And it is so extremely effective, partially because it's been gone for so long. And there is no way that sound could evoke that same emotion. But the music just takes it to another level. Oftentimes, things that we, we try to tell filmmakers, too, is when you're crafting a story and crafting, you know, the structure and the sound and all those things, try to, to not use music and get just story-wise, try to get the audience to that emotion you want and then have the music respond to that emotion and elevate it even further than they could otherwise. Otherwise, if you're just telling the audience how to feel with music, you know, they, they know they're being manipulated, Oh, here come the sad violence. I, was about to say, I, guess, sad violence. I guess we're about to <laughs> we're about to, you know, something's happened and we're supposed to feel sad. You know, get get the audience there naturally, so to speak. I mean, and we can do tricks with sound and sound design that that people don't know that we're manipulating them to, you know, get things in that sort of s- sad vein, but then have the music come in later and, and take it to the next level.
0: Yeah, no, that's um it's it's definitely true, and I, I definitely have had more than one conversation with a composer where I'm like, like I really want the audience, like I want their heart to break, but do not use sad violins. <laughs> like that's the, that's the music direction. Um, I I really really appreciate. Um,
1: yeah, of course. This. And
0: for for <laughs> what it's worth, I know I don't have like some hundred thousand following the people who I have gotten feedback from. Like a lot of times, like I said, it's film students or it's independent filmmakers or people who like. I'm trying to cover topics that I don't see being covered widely in the independent film community and mm-hmm. people have been really thankful for it. So just know that, good, good. like, hopefully this is going to be helpful. To well, people.
1: And, you know, young <laughs> filmmakers and film students, this is where, you know, sometimes we can have the most effect early on in their career instead of later on when, you know, they're like, Oh no, no, that's not the way I do it. You know,
0: Bitter sight <laughs> film industry sucks. I don't know why I have this job. I'm going to go work at Walmart. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> i i will never forget one of the first film sets i ever worked on um i was day playing for a week on uh, uh, it was csi new york and they had actually won an award for like the best locations team and they really were they were the coolest set and i was i was so like just doe-eyed and like
1: the whole
0: time and um and like later I was on another set and they were like, just these kind of like, you know, the the union guys that are like sitting there, all rah, 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 you know. And I remember looking at them and thinking to myself, you live in magic. Like, how can you not appreciate, like you're literally getting paid to be here right now. Like yeah. I would like, so I-
1: It's sad uh, seeing those people <laughs> just get so cynical about their, about what they do. It's like, you know, tap into like, what is that thing that, made you want to get into it.
0: Yeah. I remember reflecting on on that TV show and thinking to myself, I never want to forget this feeling. I never want to forget waking up right before sunrise and arriving to location for a breakfast burrito as the sun's coming up. And just that feeling of the magic of going into a space and changing it into a whole new world and then putting it back to the way it was so no one even knows you were there. And then you like have this thing that lives forever afterwards of this magical thing that you created. And I don't know, I've, am I'm, I'm, digressing, but
1: I, yeah, and we all get, we all get to play.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so speaking of playing um, when it, when it comes to sound design, obviously, you know, you've given me tons of incredible advice as far as using sound to create the scenes um, as you've said, where it can't be done visually or where the budget just isn't there to do it visually even just to add in like a layer of storytelling to the film itself using sound. Like I see sound as the moment that a film like has an extra layer of life kind of imbued into it. Like pretty shots are great and lens flares and all that. And good acting obviously is key and witty dialogue is always incredible. But so much of the film happens in what's unfortunately called silence. Like I actually got in a little bit of a Twitter tiff with somebody because I objected to them calling these powerful moments of film the silent moments because there was no dialogue, but everything they were talking about, like the core of the shots they were referencing was the actual sound design and what was happening with the audio without the dialogue. Um, And I know like you've suggested things like if you need to show it's raining, you can just use the sound of tires passing on the road outside and have that like wet, tire sound that everybody recognizes for the traffic passing outside the window or I did a little short uh, in Texas a couple years ago and the film ended with a car accident so the director used some really awesome sound design for the sounds of the accident like you never actually see it they're walking and their body kind of like shakes in this wave as you hear the sound of a crash and then he cut to this really tight shot that looks like a patient on an ambulance but it was actually just a construction goggle like turned sideways over the mouth and nose. (laughs) So it looked like an oxygen mask. And then there was like a red gel over a light that was just being moved away into camera to make what looked like ambulance lights. And then he had the sirens and all of these sounds with the voiceover of a 911 dispatcher. And it was really intense, but like on set, it was just the actress laying on the floor of, a room in his house with the camera and this mask. And um, so, yeah, I, that's a little bit of a, of a tangent, but like, I guess, how would you like encourage filmmakers to consider sound for storytelling? Like not, not everyone has access, you know, to amazing companies like the one that you work for, like, how would you like encourage filmmakers to consider sound for storytelling aside from just the usual like okay he picked up a cup we really get to that coffee mug are you going to do the coffee mug <laughs> um, yeah
1: um that that example you gave me was was fantastic about like you know shooting the woman on the floor of you know wherever with construction goggles and right. her gel i mean that's right there shows you the power of of filmmaking you can shoot something for nothing and then leave room for sound to tell the story of you know the Ambulance moving, the sirens, and the 911 dispatcher. So it's, I think, just you know, using your imagination and and really trying to sort of think about those things before too long. Because if you plan those things out from script and pre production and shooting, you know, and talking to the the DP about you know how can we shoot these things more effectively, you know, more inexpensively, and then have sound help tell the story later on. I think that's huge. But I think, you know, other inspiration is, is you know, just watching movies. You know, go back to the movies that you love and watch them again and really pay attention to the sound and what's going on with the sound. You know, a lot of times I get sucked into great filmmaking and I'm not paying attention to the sound the, the first time because I'm just like, I'm buckled in, I've got my seatbelt on and I'm going down that train of the story and I think it's it's amazing. So oftentimes I'll go back and I'll listen... To movies and and pay attention to the sound and the score and hear things that I never heard the first time, not that they they I wasn't hearing them subconsciously, right? Um, but they were having an effect on on me as an audience member. But there you know there are more and more resources out there too, um, where people are trying to sort of give a little more attention to sound design and storytelling. Um, there's some good Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts and things like that. Um, there's one, I can't remember what it's called, but I think they actually take um, sound from panels that people have given about sound design and somehow they get a hold of the stems of a scene, say like Jurassic Park, and they sort of show layer by layer and then have Gary Rydstrom's commentary talk about that. So there are great examples online. I'm sure there are tons of YouTube videos too to, to really show how people did things and, and use those things to get inspired to think about, you know, how can I do something interesting with sound and not to just grab attention that, oh, this is a cool sound, but how I can elevate my story based on audio and sound design and and things. And oftentimes it's taking things away. You know, silence is incredibly powerful. And there are a lot of people who are scared of of silence and getting too quiet. But but it can be very powerful in moments. And especially, you know, something very loud juxtaposed against something very harsh and brash and, and shrieky versus something that's soft and soothing and, and pleasant. Um, so those, those dynamics, you know, can, can have huge effect on, on audiences. So think about, think about your story from that way. You know, one of my favorite movies, uh, one I did not work on, um, but my friend in Denmark did this beautiful track for this movie called The Idealist, which is, a danish movie from a number of years ago and there are just so many creative crazy inventive things that i never would have thought of and they're so outlandish that if you saw them on paper you're like no way this would work but <laughs> it just works and it's incredible and it's like that scene in uh, the godfather um, which is a classic walter murch story and, and probably one of his most famous scenes of being in the italian restaurant and Al Pacino's character, Michael, you know, is he's, he's the one in the family who hasn't gone off into the, you know, the family of crime. He's sort of like trying to be more legitimate, but um, he he's fighting that impulse and goes off into the the restroom and, and grabs a gun that was stashed there. And through this whole scene, you're hearing this elevated train go by the restaurant. Um, you're just hearing on the tracks go by. You never see it, but you hear it. And just sort of the audience just sort of instinctively, like, buys, oh, yeah, there's a train that's nearby. And by the time he comes out of the restroom with the gun, all the neurons are firing off in his brain, and you hear the elevated train shrieking around a corner, like metal against metal, squealing. And he pulls out the gun and shoots them dead and then drops the gun and runs out, and the score doesn't come in until after um, to respond to, to what happened. And it's it's a brilliant moment, and it's like, you know, how on earth, <laughs> you know, did Walter think of of using that as a as a sonic palette? But it is so effective, and like I said, you never see it, but it works.
0: Well, that's that's incredible. I definitely um one one little film called Columbus um, that has these like I remember there's a scene uh, where she's dancing in front of the headlights, and just the way. Like, I almost expected it, like, I wasn't sure where it was going, because, you know, sometimes, sometimes films at Sundance, like, you're not sure, like, they haven't been rated yet, they're, you're not really sure what's going to happen, um, but, like, I wasn't really sure, because there was, like, this really, like, heavy breathing, and, like, kind of, like, these, like, limbs in front of a light, and I was, like, what's, what's going on here, and then you realize that it's this girl just, like, spinning in front of these headlights, like, it was just, it was just so beautiful, and very, like, human, and, you know, there's so many other sounds that could have been put into that moment. That was really the first one where I was like, whoa, and really like wanted to ask my sound question afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one I have
1: to give total credit to Coconata, the director. I mean, that's how he envisioned it. And that's, you know, the way that he had prepped it uh, when he was cutting the picture together. And uh, that's what he wanted. And so that's that's what stuck. So I'd love to take credit for that. But, but it, it wasn't me.
0: Well, that's incredible. And That actually kind of leads into my next question, which having this moment to speak to independent directors and producers, what kind of like advice would you give them just kind of in general when it comes to doing sound on their film or thinking with sound and planning their film? We may have already covered everything, but if there's anything kind of nuggets of wisdom you want to...
1: I'd say don't be afraid to think about sound and and music for that matter um, early on in your process and how it's going to And what you want it to do to serve the story. Um, And don't be afraid to find people and ask them questions. Because the last thing you want to do is have all these ideas, but not know how to execute them. And and then it's too late. You know, you've you've already shot the movie. You've already um, done all the editing. And now you want to put cool sound on there, but you never really got, you know, good advice of like how to make that work. I have heard stories of young filmmakers who, you know, the movie is wall-to-wall dialogue and they're like, now put cool sound on it. It's like, well, there's not really, you know, (laughs) you didn't really, you know, set up the movie for that. You didn't um, incorporate those areas or think about how the sound would help move the story forward, you know. So you have to really think about how I'm going to incorporate those moments and the best way to do that. So, yeah, um, reach out to people i I found, you know, sound for film people, you know, game audio people are, are really lovely and giving people. Um, so they're you know, we love to talk about sound and, and how it can be a, a powerful creative medium. So, so yeah, don't hesitate to find people and reach out. Awesome.
0: Um, well, I cannot thank you enough for your time. Um, I'm super thankful that uh, you're willing to come on the podcast that you're willing to share your incredible knowledge um, and advice with random indie filmmakers. <laughs> um, and and for what it's worth, your advice has definitely helped me and my career greatly. and I really hope that by being able to share it, it'll be able to help more people and that it you know, who knows, maybe one day down the line there'll be some random filmmaker that shows up at the ranch that is everything's like perfectly in place and ready for you and they're like i heard your (laughs) podcast 10 years ago
1: (laughs) well and i'd say if you can wrap your head around you know using sound as your secret weapon early on in your career you're going to be way ahead of so many other filmmakers because it is a great thing um to to utilize and and think about and there are a lot of filmmakers who don't take advantage of it and some some who do and, you know, I won't name any names, but there, there are definitely <laughs> some out there that you can go like, oh, yeah, they they get it. They, they understand it.
0: No, that's awesome. Um, thank you again for being here and thank you for listening. Go ahead and like and subscribe and share and tell all your friends and all that cool stuff. Um, if you have any questions or comments or things that you'd like us to share in future episodes, you can either comment directly through whatever platform you're listening on or you can email us at filmmakingactually at gmail.com. Thank you.
1: Bye. You've been listening to Filmmaking Actually with Coralinda, Space Dream Productions podcast. Subscribe to us on any or all the podcast platforms, but we especially recommend our sponsor, Anchor. If you like what you hear, leave us five-star ratings and positive reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps more listeners like you discover the show. But the best thing you can do if you really like the show is tell a friend want to leave a comment or ask a question email at filmmaking at gmail.com this is spacey speaking and hey Core, listen to this it's a skywalker sound get it and we'll see you next time